Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of, those, of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body, hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray, and I want to speak to you for a few moments on the subject, the yielded Christ. The yielded Christ. Heavenly Father, Lord, so many of these folks I stand in front of don't know me, but it doesn't matter. Lord, you know us both. Lord, you are working your will in my life, and you're working your will in their life. And Lord, there is a desire in their life for your will, otherwise they would not be in this room. I pray, Lord, that you'd use this message to move us closer to accomplishing that will. Move us further along in that path of becoming like Christ as a result of this message this morning. Lord, me included, I pray. Amen. There is some controversy about this, but I believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and if you believe differently, it's okay if you're wrong. Um, <laughs> Hebrews is either Paul's sermon or it's his collection of sermons, series of sermons that he brought in synagogues to persuade the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. Christ, of course, was not Jesus' last name. It's a term that, that means the anointed one, referencing him as the Messiah. And, of course, the Jews believed in the coming of the Messiah. They just did not believe that Messiah was Jesus, and they crucified Jesus because he claimed to be God and for other reasons. So in the synagogue service, the way it was structured, there was an opportunity in the synagogue service for any man who wanted to to get up and speak, a little bit like what you did a moment ago. And Paul would take advantage of that, and unlike you folks who just limited yourself to not preaching a sermon, he would preach a sermon. And he would take the text of the Old Testament and he would prove to the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was their Messiah. They believed in the Messiah, they just didn't believe it was Jesus. And so he would argue with them about that. And after several months of doing that, he would take what was now a group of believing Jews that were in the synagogue, as well as the unbelieving Jews, it was now a mixed multitude, and he would take the group that believed that Jesus was their Messiah and he would essentially split the synagogue and he would start a church. And... and he, he, he didn't split churches, he split synagogues. And, um, so that was his general approach. So when you read the book of Hebrews and you study the book of Hebrews, you have to understand that he's, he's convincing the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. And he, he does that with, with, with reason after reason. He layers his arguments. In this particular section of the book of Hebrews, between chapter seven, or the previous one between chapter 7 and 9, he's emphasizing that we ought to be Christian and not Jewish and that the Old Testament observances ought to be left behind. At the beginning of chapter 9, he gives us a selection of those observances centered mostly around the tabernacle. In the middle of chapter 9, Paul applies this fact, the fact that the Old Testament sacrifices were just shadows that are now done away. He points that very directly by, by telling us the atonement only comes through Christ. 
And he's very clear about that in Hebrews chapter number 9. At the end of chapter number 9, he applies that with an emphasis on the fact that Jesus Christ only died once. There needed to be an atonement. That atonement came. That atonement was in Jesus, and he only had to die once for our sins, at which point he comes back around to his primary thought in this section of Hebrews, which is that the Old Testament laws and ceremonies are done and finished by making the argument that they could not actually remove sin. So having given you that as an introduction, let's pick up again at the verses we read with verse number one. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. A perfected Jew in Paul's use of the phrase in the book of Hebrews means two different things. One is the fact, and this is primarily what he means when he says a perfected Jew and when he uses the word perfected, what he means is that the Jew who believed in the coming of the Messiah but did not believe that Messiah was Jesus was an incomplete Jew. He was a believing Jew, but he had not brought that belief to the place of completion by placing that belief in Jesus Christ. This would be similar to folks you meet, not exactly the same, but similar to folks you meet out witnessing or soul winning who believe in God and believe in the existence of Jesus, but they've never placed their faith and trust in Him to save them from their sin. They're incomplete. They believe in God, believe in Christ, but they're incomplete in their belief. And so he's, he's arguing that the Jews ought to go on unto perfection. Now, once having then become a perfected Jew by believing that Jesus was their Messiah, now then they got saved and thus were on their way to being morally perfect. And so those two things are linked together, the fact of accepting Christ Jesus as their Messiah and the fact of now having a solution to their sin problem. And he's using it in both senses, I think, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. In a sense, you could say that he's using in both senses. All right, then faith in the shadows of Christ is not the same as faith in Jesus Christ. Since Jesus' sacrifice alone was efficacious for sin, then faith in that specific Jesus was necessary at this juncture. Has Jesus already been offered the cross when the book of Hebrews is written? Yes, he has. Has the blood been applied in heaven? Yes, it has. So then faith in Jesus' sacrifice produces the moral perfection the shadows never could. Verse number two, for then would they not that they, that is these Old Testament sacrifices, have ceased to be offered because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. How are you purged from sin? The Catholics would argue it's through purgatory, which has the word purge in it. We reject that doctrine and say you don't go to purgatory to be purged from your sin. You've been purged from your sins by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The Old Testament Jews, they kept offering these sacrifices, and Paul's argument here is the proof of those fact those sacrifices could not purge you from sin is you have to keep offering them. If you could purge yourself by way of those sacrifices, then you could stop doing the sacrifices because you were purged. But they cannot purge you, and they must be continually offered as simply as a representation. This word purged in the original means, an, it means the idea of it, it's happened once, it's singular and permanent, it's entirely opposite the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Verse number three, but in those sacrifices, so these sacrifices that continue, they just represent Christ, they can't purge you from sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. This is not a bad thing. Paul's not saying that these sacrifices remind us of sin every year. Specifically, he's speaking here of the Day of Atonement. He's not saying the Day of Atonement is bad because it reminds you you're a sinner every year. He's saying the Day of Atonement is good because it reminds you you're a sinner every year. Do you need reminded of the fact you're a sinner? 
Yeah, and when you lose sight of the fact you're a sinner, all kinds of, of bad things happen in your life, whether it's before you're saved or after you're saved. And so he's saying it is a good thing that you are reminded of the fact that you've sinned. In this sense, the Day of Atonement looking forward is a little bit like the Lord's Supper for us looking backward, although it's more similar to the Passover. But it's in that sense that we are reminded of our sin and reminded of the solution to that sin. Verse number four. Four, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. If you have sin, it's neither logical nor spiritually possible for an animal to die in place of you for your sin. Who deserves to die because you've sinned? You do. Now, either you have to die as a result of your sin and go to hell, or someone who is sinless, a human being who has experienced temptation and yet never sinned, you have to find one of those who will die for you and take your death, take your sin penalty for you. This is why no matter how much you love a relative, a father, a mother, a child, no matter how much you love them, you cannot die for them because you have your own sin to die for. An animal can't die for you because it doesn't experience temptation. It cannot sin in that sense. There has to be a human being who can die for you who's never sinned one time. Huh, I wonder where we're going to find one of those. We come now then to an application or shift in Paul's argument. An animal cannot die for you. A man has to die for you. Either you die for yourself or, or, or another human being dies for you. Ergo, the Messiah had to come and take on human form. He had to come as a man because a man needs to die. And I don't mean a man as in a male, a human. He had to come as a human because a human needs to die. Verse number five, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, that is the Messiah saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. He needed a body. He needed to be incarnate. Paul argues much for the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. They don't satisfy God. For then, then I said, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Paul here is quoting Psalm chapter 40. Take your Bibles, go to Psalm chapter 40, please, if you will. He is arguing from the book of Psalms that this particular passage in Psalms applies to Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ, it represents what Jesus would would, would, how he would feel, how he would think, what would motivate him to come and die for you. Psalm chapter 40, verse number 6, please. Psalm 40 and verse number 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Now this is interesting, isn't it? The book of Psalms, mostly written by David, but written by other psalmists as well, is clearly prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet in the book of Psalms, we find the psalmist saying that God does not want sacrifice and offering. He commanded sacrifice and offering. Why did he command it if he doesn't want it? because it symbolizes what, what happens with the coming of Jesus Christ, but it doesn't satisfy the demand that there be a death for sin. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. I'll come back to that in a moment. Burnt offerings and sin offerings hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O, o my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. The shadow sacrifices are not acceptable to God as payment. A man must die. We must find a human being who can live and never sin, who will love you enough that he will, he will actually, even though he doesn't deserve it, he will take your penalty for sin and he will pay what you owe as a result of your sin. This was needed, and so Jesus said, I'll go. What does he say? He says, lo, I come. Christ yielded himself to do the Father's will, he, he yielded his will, as we find that phrase in, in Psalm 40, as well as Hebrews chapter 10. 
He yielded his will and thus satisfied God's righteous requirement for death as a result of sin. Those of you that have studied your Old Testament, read through your Old Testament, you're familiar with the concept of the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, any Jew that had been taken, um, not prisoner, what's the word I'm looking for, slave, who had been enslaved by a fellow Jew was released upon the year of Jubilee. And uh, now if for some reason that Jew who had been enslaved by another Jew, if for some reason perhaps he'd gotten married while he was enslaved and and perhaps uh, he had had children or something and and, and perhaps he did not want to go free, he wanted to stay with his family, uh, he would signify that willingness to continue in bondage by going up against the doorpost and the master would literally bore through his ear with an awl and that, that opening in his ear would signify that he had laid down his right to go free and he would instead stay in bondage. What does this passage say about the Messiah? Mine ears hast thou opened. When that slave opened his ears, yielded himself to the opening of his ears, he's laying down his entire life. He will never again have the opportunity to go free. He will forever after that be a slave, but he's willing to do that driven by his love for the individuals he's willing to stay in bondage with. The willingness of a totally yielded slave becomes, in Hebrews chapter 10, a body thou hast prepared me. If you were Jesus, why would you want a human body? Does your human body ever cause you trouble? The older you are in this room, the more you understand that. The younger you are in this room, the more you're afraid of that. And if you're not afraid of that, well, that indicates that your intelligence is not as high as it ought to be. Even as young as you men and ladies are in here, you still have failings with your body. If you don't have failings with your body, you're limited by your body. Can you just think yourself and zap be in another location? No. Can you eat whatever you want with no consequence? Well, pretty much at your age, but for the rest of us, it goes the wrong direction. Why would you want, if you're Jesus, why would you want the limitations of a human body? Why would you want something that you have to keep clean? Why would you want something that, 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 that smells bad sometimes? And why would you want something that is weak sometimes and hungry sometimes and tired sometimes and thirsty sometimes? And why would you want something that is vulnerable to damage? Why would you want that? Well, he yielded himself to that extent to take on a human body because there needed to be a human who would die for you because an animal doesn't work. So he's got to come down. He's got to take on human flesh in order that he can be your sacrifice and mine. Go back then to Hebrews chapter number 10. That willingness. How low does Christ stoop? As you're going back to Hebrews, Paul said about this issue in Philippians chapter 2, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a what? That slave who put his ear up against the door and said, go ahead and open my ear. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He took upon human form, which he didn't need to do. He made himself vulnerable, which he didn't need to do. He, he subjected himself to the indignity of human flesh, which he didn't need to do. He did it because he loved you. He laid down all of his will. He, he, he did exactly what was needed. And he humbled himself to that point, not just to that point, but to the point of death. How do you kill God? What, are you going to shoot God? Go ahead, take a gun and shoot. Is God, is God harmed? How do you kill God? Do you inflict a biological weapon upon him? Do you launch a nuclear weapon on him? How do you kill God? Well, you can't unless he takes on human form. And even then, he has to be willing to die. He didn't die until he dismissed his own spirit. 
He humbled himself by taking on human form, laying aside his will. How much did he humble himself? To the point of death. Not just any kind of death either. Not a noble death. Not a death where, where, where his, his obituary was on the front page and people sang his praises. But the death of a criminal. Not just the death of any criminal, but the worst possible kind of death that a criminal could undertake. Not just worse in the sense of embarrassing, but worse in the sense of painful. Jesus descended as far as you could possibly descend in human form to suffer the worst that a human being could suffer. He said, I'll go and I'll do that. We come then to verse number eight of Hebrews chapter number 10. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. That is the son quoting the father. The son is saying, this is what the father said. The father said, these, these goats and these bulls, these animals, they don't satisfy me. I need a human who will die. Verse number nine, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God, my father, essentially. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. What is the first thing he takes away? The first covenant, the first testament. Are we Jewish this morning? No, we're Christians. We're Christians because he took away the first that he might establish the second. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that produces our justification and our sanctification and our glorification. And we do not observe the Jewish ceremonies. And the, the, uh, there's a thing at the moment. History goes through, through cycles, if you will. And there's a thing at the moment for Christians who want to worship in Jewish forms and fashions. They want to go back. It's driven a lot by the internet. They want to go back and they want to, instead of going to church on Sunday, they want to observe the Sabbath and, and they want to follow the Old Testament laws and, and, and they want to put the tassels on their garments and they, they, they want to observe those sorts of things. They think that somehow in doing so they become closer to God. And Paul essentially says, not just here, but repeatedly in the book of Hebrews, you don't need to go back. Going back is pointless. He's, he's taken that away. It's gone that he might establish the second. Verse number 10, by the which... What's the next word? Are you in there? Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 10. By the which, what? Will. That seems like a curious phrase in English, doesn't it? By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times did Jesus have to die on the cross? Once. This is what is so awful, so appalling about the Catholic Mass. What does the Catholic Mass assert? The Catholic Mass asserts that every time Mass is offered, uh, in my particular town, Dubuque, Iowa, has 60,000 people. It used to be called the, the Little Rome on the Mississippi. My, my, my little town of 60,000 people has 10 Catholic parishes. 10. That's one for every 6,000 people. In those 10 Catholic parishes, just in the city limits of Dubuque, in those 10 Catholic parishes, every morning a priest gets up and says Mass. In that Mass, every time he says Mass, he is crucifying God over again. That's what they teach the Mass is. Apparently, the Catholics have never read the book of Hebrews. Because how often was Jesus sacrificed? Once for all. Why? Because it's not like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why did you do that? Because they couldn't purge sin. If they could purge sin, you wouldn't have to keep offering them. 
So why were they continually offered? To remind you you're a, you're a sinner and you need a Savior. That's why. There must be an atonement for your sin. So now we've got somebody to atone for our sin. We've got somebody who said, I'll go. I'll take on human flesh. I'll humble myself. I'll do your will, Father. I'll take on human flesh. And I will die for the sins of people. And I will, I will pay their penalty. And now that's been done. We don't need to do it again once for all. But you back up in the verse. And we see that phrase again. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I know from, from the Word of God, especially in context of the book of Hebrews, that my atonement comes through the death of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That blood applied uh, to, the, to, to the altar, to the, to the mercy seat in heaven is our propitiation, as our brother mentioned that word a moment ago. I know that my atonement comes through the death and blood of Jesus Christ, shed blood of Jesus Christ. But here the Bible says that my sanctification comes through the will of Jesus Christ. The which will. Which will? Jesus' will. What do you mean Jesus' will? When Jesus said, I'll go. If Jesus hadn't yielded his will to the Father's will, you wouldn't have somebody who could die on a cross for you. If you didn't have somebody who could die on a cross for you, you'd never find somebody who could because all of us are sinners. If it were not for the will of Jesus Christ to be entirely yielded to his heavenly Father, to the place where he would take on human flesh, humble himself that way, humble himself to the point of death, humble himself to the death of the cross, if he weren't willing to do that, you wouldn't have justification and sanctification and glorification. You only have it by the will of Jesus Christ, who yielded that will entirely to his Father. So that is the passage. Having walked you through the passage, allow me to give you very briefly four statements of application. Number one, someone had to take on human flesh and die, Christ did. Someone had to take on human flesh and die, Christ did. I've already explained that thoroughly. I'm not going to belabor the point again. Number two, in so doing... He submerged his will entirely to that of the Father, up to and including death on the cross. How willing was he? Did you ever have somebody ask you and say, come to you and say to you, can you do me a favor? And usually what you say when a friend says, can you do me a favor? You say, sure, what is it? But if they then ask you if, 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 if you'll wash their car and wax their car and then uh, drive their car to Charlotte and sell it for $50,000 and bring the money back to you. I'm just spinning this out as I go along. <laughs> if they ask you some ridiculous thing, the next time they walk up to you and ask you, can you do me a favor, you're going to say what? <laughs> oh, man, I'm busy. i got to wash my salad bowls, dude. I can't. <laughs> Not possible. Not possible. How far did the son give up his will to the father? all the way to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's like me coming to you and saying, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. We don't do that. We don't function that way. Most of the time, we want to do what we want to do, right? And the only thing we want more than that is we want other people to do what we want them to do. See, I have my will for me, and I have my will for you, which is to do my will for you. Jesus, who had the power to do whatever it was he wanted, 
laid down his will to the point where he went to the father and he said, here's a blank check. Whatever you put in that check, I'll do. And the father said, I need a person. I need somebody who'll take on human flesh, who'll live a sinless life, experience all the temptation, all the opposition, all of the sadness, all of the frustration, all of the sorrow of being a human being, and at the end of it, die. And not just die a a, a wonderful death, uh, but die an awful death. And then who will suffer the payment of all of everyone's sin and hell. Need somebody who'll do that? And Jesus said, I'll go. I will, he said. Number three, it is his totally yielded will that sanctified us. I understand it's his death and his blood, but it's his will. Matthew 26, verse 39, the Bible tells us he went a little further. This is the night before his death. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Edersheim says about this text and other texts similar, he says the single most important thing about the life of Christ is the fact he always did the will of his father. First time I read Edersheim make that statement in his work, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ the Messiah, I said, that doesn't sound right to me. How can you say the miracles aren't important? How can you say that, I mean, I look at what stands out about the life of Jesus Christ is all these amazing things, but you're going to tell me what stands out about his life is the fact he always did the will of his Father. But by the time I got done with that volume, he convinced me that he was right. The most outstanding characteristic of the life of Christ is he always obeyed the Father. Always did. If the father said jump, he said how high? He never expressed his own will. He laid down his own will, and he did whatever the father wanted him to do. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, all of that is my introduction. Don't worry, the sermon is going to be short. If we stopped right there, we could have a wonderful time praising God for Jesus Christ. Well, praise God that we had somebody who would come and take on human form and be our sacrifice and pay for our sin and love us enough to do that and yield up his will and go through the indignity of being human and and, and the humility of death, even a death like the cross, who loves me enough to give me that for free, doesn't charge me a thing, who all I have to do is express my faith and trust in him and in what he said he did in the work of Jesus Christ that gives me eternal life and eternal life that gives me heaven, that takes away all the pain and all the sickness and all the sorrow of of this life. It gives me all of that. It costs me nothing. It's because of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Hallelujah. And it is. But that's not the message. Take your Bibles. Go to Romans chapter 12. One of the things you discover about Jesus Christ, and it is a precious thing, is he never comes to you and asks you to do a thing, or bear a thing, or carry a thing that he has not done first. He never comes to you and says, go do what I haven't done. He never asks you to endure what he has not endured first. He never asks you to suffer what he has not suffered first. He never asks you to go further than he went himself. He goes before us in all things. He's our example in all things. Did Jesus Christ give up his will entirely? Did he yield himself completely to the Father 
so that there was a human being there, divine, yet human being there who could pay for our sin. Yes, he did. So then he has the right to look at you and the right to look at me and say, when the father needed somebody to go, I said, I'll go. So if I need somebody to go, you need to put your hand up and say, I'll go. See, when the father said, I need somebody who'll give me a blank check, I gave him a blank check. So when I look at you and I tell you, I need you to give me a blank check, you need to give him a blank check. What Jesus Christ asks of you when he asks everything of you is not unreasonable. It is, to quote the next text, a reasonable thing. Why? Because he did it himself. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the what? Not out of a sense of payment. You're not going to offer your will to God because you owe him that. You're going to offer your will to God because he has extended such mercy to you. Such mercy that you could spend the rest of your life cataloging how much mercy God gave you. Such mercy that you will spend the rest of your life experiencing it. Such mercy that is, glory to God, I love that passage that says it's brand new every morning. That mercy from God to me, I don't deserve heaven. I deserve to be in hell. I don't deserve the, 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 the privilege and the blessing of having a sweet wife and having children that love me. And, and I don't deserve the health to walk across the room this morning. And I don't deserve the right to be able to minister as a, as a servant to the Lord and, and serve his people. And I certainly don't deserve the right to be behind this pulpit this morning. I don't deserve anything except to be in hell. Every good thing in my life is the mercy of God. And what does that do? It motivates me. What do people do who say no to God? They justify it. Well, God, I, I know why they can go, but I can't because. You have no justification to say no to God. You have none. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your what? See, you already have one. You didn't know when you got it how much difficulty it was going to bring you. Some of you still don't know. You'll learn it if the Lord tarries is coming and you get to move up in years. You'll learn it. But our Savior knew all that ahead of time and he still took one on. Present your bodies. What's the next two words say? What? He presented his body, both a living sacrifice and a dying sacrifice. He doesn't even ask you necessarily to do the second, just the first. He came, and every day he lived, he did his Father's will. He said to a crowd of people that hated him, which I wouldn't say to a crowd of people that loved me, which of you convinceth me of sin? No one here can ever show me, can ever persuade anybody where I've ever broken the law of God. He, every single day, he was a living sacrifice, but at the end of that period, he was a dying sacrifice. He only asked you to do the easier part, which is the living part. A living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your what service? It's not unreasonable. 
Not unreasonable because he made you, not unreasonable because he redeemed you, not unreasonable because he did it first and did it further and did it more and did it better. Don't you ever look at God and say, God, it's not fair what you're asking me to do. It's not fair the health problem you've given me. It's not fair the the family problems you've given me. It's not fair the financial problems you've given me. It's not fair the the abuse I have in my past where somebody scarred me. It's not fair. So-and-so doesn't have that. So-and-so doesn't have that. It's not fair. Don't you ever tell God it's not fair. Whatever is his will for you, his, you listen, I, I'm not saying this out of anger. You listen to me this morning, beloved. Whatever is his will for you, whatever he puts on that blank check, it is a reasonable thing, he asks. And be not conformed to this world. How sad it is when the Christ who died for us finds the people he redeemed love the world more than they love the Savior. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove or test what is, this is not three different wills, it is three different descriptions of the will of God. What is that good? It's good. Whatever God wants you to do is good. And perfect, oh, it can't be any better. And acceptable, you offer it to God, He will accept it, you do it in faith. Will of God. The father asked the son, will you go? And the son yielded his will. Not just in that moment, but in every moment following that. Now God comes to you and me and he says, will you yield your will to mine? The problem with a living sacrifice. I think it was Lester Loft that said this, although I'd be surprised if it was original with him. The problem with a living sacrifice is it can crawl back off the altar. The Old Testament, they slaughtered those animals and they placed them up on the altar. That animal was dead and could not crawl off the altar. But God comes to you this morning and he says, you see these right here? He said, I want those, those eyes. So you say, okay, God, I'll yield you my eyes. About 30 minutes later, you find yourself looking at something you're not supposed to. Boy, you just yanked that right back away from him. He says, you see those things on the end of your arms? I want your hands and what you do with those hands. And so you say, okay, God, I'll give you my hands. But the problem is that pretty soon you take those back and you write something with those hands or you do something with those hands that you know you're not supposed to. It's not the will of God. You see those feet at the end of your legs. Boy, there's a youth meeting somewhere and God has been working upon your heart and you go forward and you surrender. You say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Except God called me. I I grew up in a town of 4,000 people and I pastored in a town of 1,100 people. My wife grew up on a farm on the side of a hill in Pennsylvania. He called us to the middle of Chicago. I mean, not, not, not the suburbs, I mean the middle I don't mean the the, the downtown where the tourists go. I mean the middle. And for 16 years we labored there. I didn't have the right to tell God, God, this doesn't make sense. We're not, we're not like this culture. We're, we're a different color and we're a different ethnicity and, and, and we, we have a different background and nothing about the way we function makes sense for you to put us there. God, let, let us go somewhere else. I don't have the right to do with these feet what I want to do with. But so often I have. 
God gave me this mind. He didn't give me this mind to do what I want to do with his mind. He gave me this mind to do what he wants me to do with his mind. And I've yielded it to him, but so often I'm so tempted to yank it back and say, oh, I'm going to take my mind and I'm going to formulate a string of syllables and I'm going to slaughter my opponents online. How tempted I am to do my will. If you've crawled off the altar this morning, crawl back. It's not unfair. I do not say that unkindly, but it is not unfair. It is reasonable. Whatever he asks you to do, however he asks you to spend your living sacrifice, just say yes. Just say yes. If you've been pleasing yourself, give it up. Please him. You've taken Christ off the throne of your heart and enthroned yourself. Put Christ back on the throne. If you sit here this morning and there's some issue or something about which you've been arguing with God, trying to persuade Him why He is mistaken in your case, stop arguing with Him and yield. You would not be here this morning. You would not be headed to heaven this morning. You wouldn't have all the promises of God, yea and amen, this morning if Christ had not yielded His will entirely to the Father. Be like Jesus, whatever God is calling you to do, wave the white flag. Just surrender.